You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The Earth, which at first had filled nearly half their sky, was rapidly growing smaller. Being almost between themselves and the sun, it looked like a crescent moon. John Jacob Astor, who was a very rich man at this time in the 1890s, writes a science fiction novel, A Journey to Other Worlds, where he imagines a trip in the year 2000. He's writing this in the mid-1890s. To all planets of the solar system. And, And the trip is taken in this very 1890s, type imagined contraption. Here's what he writes. At that moment, at 9 a.m. New York, there was night there. The Callisto, their spaceship, was bathed in a flood of sunlight as never shines on Earth. The only night they would have was on the side of the Callisto turned away from the sun unless they passed through some shadow, which they intended to avoid on account of the danger of colliding with a meteor. There were a number of 16-candle power incandescent lamps so that when passing through the shadow of a planet, or at night after their arrival on Jupiter. Their car would be brightly illuminated. They also had a good searchlight for examining the dark side of a satellite, or exploring the spaces in Saturn's rings. Having lunched sumptuously on canned chicken soup and pheasant that had been sent to them by some of their admirers that morning, they put the bones in the glass can that had contained the soup into the double-doored partition or vestibule, placing a large sheet of cardboard to act as a wad between the scraps and the outside door. By pressing a button, they unfastened the outside door and the articles to be disposed of were shot off by the expansion of air. (laughs) It's kind of funny that they're using this cardboard and air pressure and things like that imagined in that day. We must be ready to catch the signals from the Arctic Circle. And yes, as Astor writes, there's light signals sent from the Arctic Circle which they can pick up in their ship. In this blaze of sunlight, I'm afraid we can see nothing. The sun had apparently set back the moon, but then it shone. Generated by all the available dynamos at Niagara and Bay of Fundy, the steam engines and other sources of power in the Northern Hemisphere, so looking at geothermal power to send a signal to space. A beam lasted intensity for more than one minute, and then spells out rapid sentences. Our telescopes and whatever part of the Earth was torn towards you have followed you since you started. On your present course, you'll be in darkness till 1216, when we shall see you again. On receiving this last earthly message, the traveler sprang to their searchlight and, using its full power, telegraphed the following. Many thanks to you for good news about Earth and to Secretary Deepwaters for lending us the Navy. Result of good work, most glorious. The first thing that attracted their attention was the size and brilliance of Mars. Although this red planet was over 40 million miles from the Earth when they started, they calculated that it was less than 30 million miles from them now or five millions nearer than where it had been before. This reduction in distance and the clearness of the void through which they saw it made a splendid sight, its disk showing clearly. From hour to hour, its size and brightness increased. Not even did Columbus, standing at the prow of the Santa Maria, with the new world before him, feel the exultation and delight experienced by these latter-day explorers of the 21st century. So John Jacob Astor does write this novel, and he has various things. They go hunting on Jupiter, huge crocodile-like reptiles that they have to fend off. 
But when they get to Saturn, it's quite different. They don't see any animals at all. And it turns out there's nothing there but spirits of animals that used to inhabit the place. So it's an interesting little look at what space travel might be like. He culminates in even getting beyond the solar system. And they're traveling and seeing the solar system in the distance. And, you know, he figured that by 2000 we'd be doing this thing. He has all types of, like, limestone-based batteries and lamps and candles and technology that existed at that time that's going to be used to propel the, the spaceship, but we're not needing all of that. But it does give you that idea that when Man on the Moon in 1969, it happened then, but the idea of it was so much, you know, in the 19th century. Hiram Stevens' maxim built something else. A flying machine, except it doesn't fly into the sky. It's designed not unlike a roller coaster on tracks. It's 145 feet long and it weighs three and a half tons. Its wingspan is 110 feet. On either side, there are two 360 horsepower steam engines that drive two propellers. No one's in his machine. It rides on 1800 rails. And it's actually prevented by rising by outriggers underneath and woody, wooden safety rails overhead. Kind of like a roller coaster might be. It wanted to test if the machine could get lift off the ground. And it does. All of the outriggers are engaged, showing that the machine had exactly had enough lift to take off. But in doing so, it damages the track. And he abandons work on it. But the quest for a flying machine doesn't seem to stop during these years. Everyone wants to learn to fly. Lawrence Hargrave of Greenwich, England, successfully lifted himself off the ground under the train of four of his box kites. At Stanwell Park Beach in New South Wales, Australia, November 12, 1894, he moors his kite line to a spring balance to two sandbags so he doesn't fly away. There was a sense that we were close to flight. When I say we, I mean Americans were close to flight. There were enough small gains to see that future. There were gliders. There were balloons. There were kites. There was motor power. And, of course, the bicycle, which is not new in the 1890s by any means, but perfected in use to office workers getting to work on bikes, very common in the 1890s, that had already broke the limitations of human travel. The British Army establishes a balloon section of the Royal Engineers. The Imperial Russian Navy established aerostatic parks, balloon parks, on the coast of the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. America was also interested, and its main investment came through the Smithsonian and the work of Samuel Pierpont Langley. He flies an unmanned flyer the Aerodome No. 5, from a spring-actuated catapult mounted on the top of a houseboat on the Potomac River near Quantico, Virginia. He does this several times. In one of these launchings, his unmanned flyer goes 3,300 feet at 25 miles per hour, and it splashes in the Potomac because in order to save weight, it was not equipped with landing gear. Langley's name is all over a lot in Washington, D.C., and a lot in aviation. He had the support of the establishment in aviation experimentation in America. 
but he would never get much farther than these unmanned flights. While Orville and Wilbur Wright were in the 1890s working on their designs, testing elements, testing various controls, levers, mechanisms that could turn bicycles into airplanes. But right now, they're unknown outside their local Ohio bicycle shop. Someone else that's involved in the budding movement behind flight, airplanes were invented, is a figure you wouldn't expect, Wild Bill Cody. Those Wild West shows made him already famous during this period, but his real dream was taking to the sky. For him, the solution was not kind of what the Wright brothers had, which was a kind of winged, lightly motored glider, evolved from a glider, and it was not what Langley was trying to do, was to use maximum force with a powerful engine. For him, it was kites, man kites. And he came up with a system of not just one kite and not even just one box kite in squares, but a group of box kites that in tandem could take up a man in a wicker basket, involved double Hargrave box kites with wings that added additional lift. The wings had scalloped edges on the... He makes this during the 1890s. He won't patent it until 1901. Was what Wild Bill Cody doing flight? The humans were raised in his experiments, but control was still an issue, and keeping the flyer up was still an issue, just like with all the aerial experiments of the 1890s. Yet Cody was so thrilled with his invention that he would demonstrate it for the British military. And the British were interested. It was proposed that the passenger could be outfitted with a telescope, a telephone, a camera, firearm, and lifted to an an altitude of 3,500 feet. Even before true flight was invented, the peacemakers were already worried. The Hague Convention of 1899 prohibits military aircraft from discharging projectiles and explosives, but permits the wartime use of aircraft for reconnaissance and other purposes. Hard times are with us. The country is distracted. Very few things are marketable at a price above the cost of production. Tens of thousands are out of employment. The jails, the penitentiaries, the workhouses, and insane asylums are full. The gold reserve at Washington is sinking. The government is running at a loss. It's called Coins Financial School. It doesn't seem like the stuff that would start a political revolution. I mean, it's just a book. Brown book, copy that I have. Copyright 1894. Dedicated to those trying to locate the seat of the disease that threatens us the life of the nation. This book is dedicated by William Harvey. And there's a picture of a fellow who's very well-dressed. He's plump. He's got plaid pants and a vest, nice jacket, a top hat, and he's in the middle of a scale. And the gold is rising above him on one side of the scale. On the other side is wheat and silver coins. It's only when you look closely that you'll notice that he's holding the wheat and the coins down on that side of the scale, bringing the gold artificially up. In case it's not clear, there's a little tag attached to the man that says, Financial Manipulator. This was a bestseller, and it tells the story, and like any good story, it starts from the beginning. At the Christian era, the metallic money of the Roman Empire amounted to $1,800,000,000. 
By the end of the 15th century, it had shrunk to 200 million. These are huge numbers for people in these times. Dr. Adam Smith informs us that in 1455, the price of wheat in England was two pence for bushel per bushel. History records no such disastrous transition as that from the Roman Empire to the Dark Ages. Population dwindled, and commerce, arts, wealth, and freedom all disappeared. The people were reduced by poverty and misery to the most degraded conditions of serfdom and slavery. The discovery of the New World by Columbus restored the volume of precious metals, brought with it rising prices, enabled society to reunite its shattered links, shake off the shackles of feudalism, and to relight and uplift the almost extinguished torch of civilization. And to this, coined financial school, coins financial school cites the U.S. Monetary Commission of 1878. Honest labor seeks employment it cannot find in the hungry and the shelterless. Our unemployed are seen daily around the Columbus statue without hope and despair. The New World in 1893 celebrated the discovery of America during a period of depression brought about by the destruction by law of one half of the precious metals as primary money. So destructive, so blighting is the effect that the people are being reduced to poverty and misery. It is a time for wisdom and sound sense to take the helm and coin a young financier living in Chicago acting upon a suggestion, established a school of finance. So what you're going to see here, and there's a picture of this guy, Coin, is a fictional account of a school, but you get to sit in on the various lessons from this very wise individual. In money, there must be a unit. In arithmetic, as you are aware, you were taught what a unit is. Thus, I make here on the blackboard the figure one. That in arithmetic is a unit. All countings are sums or multiples of that unit. A unit, therefore, in mathematics was a necessity as a basis to start from. In making money, it was equally necessary to establish a unit. The Constitution gave the Congress the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Congress, the original Congress, adopted silver and gold as money. It then proceeded to fix the unit. That is, it fixed what shall constitute the amount of alloy to be mixed with it to give it greater hardness and durability. This was in 1792. The days of Washington and Jefferson, our revolutionary forefathers, who had a hatred of England. Among the first things they did after fighting a hard-fought battle with England and earning their independence was to make 371 and one-fourth grain of silver the unit of values. That much silver was to constitute a dollar. In any case... What Coyne's going to explain to several pictures of him at the blackboard, and you can kind of experience it, is that it started with the Founding Fathers. And then later, just in recent times, we stopped using single money, which had always been silver money, which had always been an American tradition. Coyne will give several lessons in this book. He will um, give the benefits of silver money. He will answer critics. It turns out many of these critics didn't actually, you know, write in and ask him a question at all. But he presents it as if they asked him a question, and then he answers it masterfully. For any movement, it's good to have a kind of intellectual or at least quasi-intellectual backup. A book, a thick book of arguments that you can point to because the average person doesn't really know all the arguments, even if they support the larger cause. 
And coins provided that. And if you had that backup and you were told that something very wrong was going on and that there was a solution, you might be propelled to walk, to take your case to your government. The army of Jacob Coxey wasn't a true army, and he wasn't a military general. He was an activist and writer. He got a lot of attention for his plan to bring an army of unemployed to Washington, D.C. to petition the government. And it was organized like an army, with Coxey as the general and he having captains and lower ranks. It marched through many states, building momentum, 6,000 at least, at one point. And other armies would come to find Coxey's army and join them. Some of them wouldn't make it from far west. The writer Jack London and many Californians came all the way from the rest to join the parallel army, Kelly's army formed in San Francisco. Charles T. Kelly's 2,000 people went to Ogden, Utah, and then Denver, and people welcomed the army and provided food. It was once my pleasure to spend a few weeks with a push that number 2,000, Jack London said, Mary Jones, known as Mother Jones, wife of an iron worker and a trade union activist, was a key supporter of Coxey's army. Not everyone's excited about Coxey's army. Laura Ingalls Wilder described a harsher version of towns afraid and troops guarding the government buildings as the army went through. The army was officially called the Commonwealth of Christ, and Coxey was calling for a $500 million bond financing program to build roads and employment. If it sounds like a lot, in CPI terms, just the cost of eggs, it's $15 billion today. If you use the value of labor computed today to then, it's $88 billion. It's not just that Coxey has this large army of unemployed people. It's also that from the beginning, he has a contingent of pressmen from all the major joining this army, marching with it, and reporting details to either scare people or awaken people to join his army. He gets to a farm outside Washington. He enjoys donated food from locals. He avoids every effort by federal marshals to detain him. I like Thomas Frank and his take on this. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas, which uh, delves into these issues. From the first convention of the populist, the Kansas City Star, an influential regional paper, surveyed the Cincinnati Convention, where the party was born, and sneered that it bore a much closer semblance to a mob than a deliberative assembly. The conference from beginning to end was distinguished for its intolerance and extreme bigotry. The judgment of the Topeka Daily Capital, the leading voice of republicanism in Kansas was harsher. The story about Cincinnati was as followed. Cincinnati rapidly filling up with the disgruntled ravelings of the old parties and making themselves ridiculously conspicuous by their gab. Hayseed in their hair, said another headline. Kansas alliancers proclaim their politics by the uncouthness of their personal attire. This, Frank says, is how the establishment welcomed the populist revolt into the land. And 
This is pretty much how the establishment thinks of populism still. From the very beginning, populism, populism had two meanings. There was populism as proponents understood it, a movement in which ordinary working people demanded economic reforms democratically and the way their opponents did, which was demagoguery. The name, Frank says, I give to this disdainful reaction is anti-populism. And when you investigate its history, you find adherents using the same rhetoric over and over again, whether defending the gold standard in 1896 or NAFTA in 2016, anti-populism mobilizes the same sentiments and draws on the same stereotypes. It sometimes even speaks to us from the same prestigious institutions. Its most toxic ingredient, talking about anti-populism, a highbrow contempt for ordinary Americans, is still as virulent today. Now, it's interesting because Frank is writing his book, The People Know About Anti-Populism, at a time when President Trump had just been elected and there was a lot of talk about this. This is a, you know, a problem with democracy and things like that. Um, while making clear that the average populist and the history of populism doesn't know any kind of movement around a great leader like that. It should be exactly the opposite. He also takes aim at some of the people making statements about, oh, the real problem is democracy. And if we just had more institutional strength, we'd be better off. If we just had more elitism, we'd be better off in one form or the other. He has, you know, the heritage uh, foundation and the Brookings Institution, like left and right, will both be saying some of the same things on a topic like that. So I find Frank interesting in this regard that populism did stoke anti-populism. And one of the things is going to be in Kansas, William Allen White is going to become a kind of a, what's the best way to say, like a Ben Shapiro, Rush Limbaugh type in what happens to him because he's a very young man. He writes a story about what's the matter with Kansas. And it's like, no one wants to come here. Everyone's leaving their business. And it's because we've got all these crazy populists. Kansas was kind of the center of the populist movement. And Weaver wins that state in 1892. Brian picks it up. It's going to get a populist governor. It's going to elect a populist legislature. Oh, so they think. Republicans challenge the results. Populists occupy the legislative building in the chambers, Republicans gather arms and make ready to attack that chamber and perhaps gun down the populace with the populist governor who is in office working with the militia, militia controlled by Republicans, they work out a deal. Goes to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court ends up ruling for the Republicans and Kansas's legislative war is over. But what's the matter with Kansas, William Allen White writes? Why do we have people saying raise less corn and more hell? Who, you know, and, 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 and it's this kind of anti-populism populism that propels White to like being repeated in all kinds of newspapers. He gets some stardom out of this. He becomes friendly with presence. He's going to be one of Theodore Roosevelt's good friends, friendly with Taft as well. But as Frank notes, eventually... William Allen White is going to change his mind and become more populist in the 1920s and 30s. He's also going to become a 
courageous speaker against the Klan in Kansas. December 1890, the National Farmers Alliance and the Industrial Union, the Southern Farmers Alliance, its affiliate, the Colored Farmers Alliance, the Farmers Mutual Benefit Association meet jointly in Florida, Cala, Florida, the Marion Opera House, and adopt the Akala Demands. Calls for the abolition of national banks, the establishment of sub-treasuries or depositories in every state that would make low-interest direct loans to farmers and property owners, the increase of money in circulation to not less than $50 per capita, the abolishment of futures of all agricultural and mechanical productions, the introduction of free silver, the prohibition of alien ownership of land, the reclamation of all lands held by railroads and other corporations in excess of what was actually used and needed by them, held for actual settlers only, legislation to ensure one industry would not be built up at the expense of another, and removal of the tariff tax on necessities of life, an income tax, limitation of national and state revenues to the necessary expenses are all part of what they're asking for. They become the People's Party in 1892, and those Akala demands of 1890 are incorporated into the party's Omaha platform. That ticket of James Weaver and James Field will get 8.5% of the popular vote and carry four western states. There's a lot of offshoots of the populist movement. Tom Watson is a southern populist, and he has a solution. His populist party, of which he was the most prominent southern member of, would address the race problem in the country by addressing the common interest of black and white farmers. He would say things like, you were kept apart, mainly so that you could be separately fleeced of your earnings. You're made to hate each other because it's upon that hatred rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism, which enslaved you both. You're deceived and blinded. Indeed, when Coxey's army marches across the country to Washington to illuminate the plight of the impoverished, they are not segregated and would be the custom at that time. Shunned at regular churches, they're welcomed at black churches as they march to Washington. Populist Republicans, white and black, were able to take North Carolina's government from Democrats for several years. Novelist Hamlin Garden in his 1897 book said, Poverty has few distinctions among its victims. The Colored Farmers Alliance of Southern sharecroppers who are African American was an essential building block of that National People's Party. It wouldn't last, and the commitments of everyone were not so sincere, particularly in the South, where prejudices died hard. Indeed, Tom Watson, who was not overtly racist in the beginning, later in the 19-teens, will revive his career coming out as a segregationist. Women are also part of the populist movement, much more than any other kind of politics up until that time. Mary Elizabeth Lees was the one who told Kansas populists to raise less corn and more hell. Annie Diggs, according to a Kansas City newspaper, was the unqualified dictator of Kansas populists. This is, you know, something important to note. Um, And this movement will really, and it'll only take four years for the political effects to happen because the 1896 Democratic nominee will be William Jennings Bryan. And he's definitely picked as a way to get that popular vote on the, you know, they're looking at, oh, you know, today we look at 8.5% and say, what's that? That's not a lot. But if you're looking at a swing, that's a great amount of voters and also states in the Electoral College, and if you can swing that to your side. 